extra reminder. To those of you online, welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us uh, through this medium, and we trust the Lord is blessing you where you are. For all of you, it's a delight to see you. Those of you who are visiting with us, welcome. It's uh, wonderful to have you. We trust that this will be a time of blessing for you and encouragement as we look at God's Word together and worship Him. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel 24. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 and read down through the end of the chapter as this entire chapter encapsulates one incident. We will spend this Sunday and, Lord willing, next Sunday exploring it. 1 Samuel 24. Uh, If you're able, please, would you join me standing for the reading of God's holy word. Beginning at verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which Yahweh said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, Yahweh forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, Yahweh's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is Yahweh's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked around behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how Yahweh gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is Yahweh's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you may hunt my life to take it. May Yahweh judge between me and you. May Yahweh avenge me against you, but my hand, my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the Ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May Yahweh therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. 
And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when, the, when Yahweh put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may Yahweh reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by Yahweh that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. You know, when you get down to the root of most miserable, wicked, and damaging things that occur in this world, it's safe to say that those things are a result of loss. But not as the world likes to paint it, a loss of opportunity, or a loss of wealth, or a loss of self-worth, or a loss of something or someone that is loved. No, I would contend that the root of these things, and I'm not uh, ignorant of sin as the root cause of all things, but hang in there with me on this one. It's a loss of control. Think about that for a minute. Everyone loves control when they're the one who gets to do the controlling. But when it comes to controlling ourselves, control takes on a completely different connotation. Is that really not behind the sin of the Garden of Eden? And that Eve and then Adam did not control themselves because of their sin. Because they wanted, they wanted to be the ones in charge. They wanted to be the ones like God. They wanted to be in control. And sin then entered into the world. Um, the recent uh, He Gets Us campaign um, that was, I mean, I didn't watch the Super Bowl, so I've only seen this thing like on social media. Uh, that, uh, that ad, which uh, many, unfortunately, in the evangelical world go, well, hey, at least the name of Jesus got out there. Well, yeah, it did. It's just not the Jesus of the Bible. No gospel. It's, hey, you can be anything you want, do anything you want, completely defy God's law. <clears throat> be in control of your own life, your own destiny, your own, your own identity, all of that stuff, but Jesus will love you anyway. And that is an abomination to the scriptures. But it's all based in the desire for controlling who you are, who you, what you do, where you go, all according to your own sense of what is right and wrong. That's the world we live in. Well, now we come to an account in the life of David that vividly illustrates biblical self-control in his life. And if you're already familiar with the broad sweep of things in David's life, uh, you know that uh, control was not something he always exercised. But in this particular case, we see uh, a, a really wonderful picture of control. Almost lost it, 
But God gave him the grace to walk with control, walking under the principles of God's law. And by contrast, we see another man in this account, uh, King Saul, who uh, didn't practice that self-control. And of course, brought much harm on the nation, as well as much grief to David and his family and those of, of the men that uh, went with David. Um, actually, with chapter 24, we enter into a section in which there are three accounts just in succession, chapter 24, 25, and 26, that all highlight David's struggles in various ways and an ultimate victory. And the a primary area of the victory is in self-control. In this particular uh, chapter, it's self-control when he was opposed by Saul. Um, in the next uh, chapter 25, the story of Nabal and Abigail and that whole, whole story. There is um, self-control when he's angry. And in 26, there's self-control when he's betrayed. Very similar, actually, passage to, verse, to chapter 24. But I'd like you to think just, it's been a while since we've been in David. I was looking at uh, my notes and I keep tab of the track of the, the dates of when I preach stuff. And yeah, I think it was November was the last time. So it's, it's been a while since we've been talking about David. I, in the immediately preceding chapter, remember Saul had been pursuing David yet again. And David had fled into the wilderness and it came to a point that David was on one side of a mountain and Saul was on the other. Uh, all the spies were out and uh, David was just, it was kind of like the, the classic thing that you, know, you see in the movies, you know, when you're hiding behind a post and the bad guy's coming and everybody's kind of moving this way. Uh, David was on the other side of the mountain and it looked pretty grim. But then... Saul heard that the Philistines were raiding once again across the border, uh, gave up the chase for David, went and did the right thing that he should have been doing all along, which is patrolling the borders. And um, don't, I, that's a rabbit trail. Won't go down there. Um, should have been patrolling the borders. Anyway, he, he, he heard the Philistines were raiding. Off he goes. And the Lord delivered David that time. That happens immediately prior to this. And from there, uh, that place was called the Rock of Escape. David went from there, it tells us, at the end of 23, and he lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Now, many of you are probably familiar with some biblical geography. En Gedi is um, on the west side of the Dead Sea. It's a very mountainous region, lots of cliffs, lots of caves. And uh, that's where David and his men were hiding in that area. Now... With that in mind, um, we can start to see this pattern. We've already seen a pattern of Saul chasing David, David, David fleeing, David not uh, striving to uh, basically in, in really defend himself. Um, he just tried to stay out of Saul's way. And the Lord consistently is delivering him. You know, when you read this account... Of, of David's life. 
And it, it's pretty, it's a pretty incredible story. I, I don't know about you, but I think I've mentioned to you before that David is, he's like my, next to the Lord Jesus, he's my favorite character in the Bible. His story has just fascinated me for years. And why he's called a man after God's own heart. And, and what does that mean when you see all of the failings that he's prone to? Um, and yet, it was, we've been exploring through this whole series about David exhibiting in his heart and life godly principles. Even when he, when he fails, he's quick to repent. He's quick to strive to restore a relationship with his Lord. He's sensitive to the Lord. And of course, we see that throughout the Psalms as he's just, he, he just, he lives in this, in this, what sort of the word is, immediate, uh, almost, almost tangible relationship with the Lord God of Israel. In the same kind of way that, you know, we live in our homes or with our friends and we're just, we have that immediate back and forth and that connection. David walks that way with the Lord. Prays things that sometimes we would never think to pray or kind of gasp when we see him pray it because it's so, almost seems presumptive. And yet he knows the Lord so well. You know, when you know somebody real well, you can have a different kind of conversation than you can with a stranger, right? Um, and David has those kind of conversations, and it's just, wow. You look at this, and there have been some uh, throughout the years, uh, particularly since the rise of the modernist movement and so on in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, where rationalism became king and wanted to call into account every, every uh, or call into question, I should say, every every account uh, that might uh, possibly suggest that there was some divine intervention or something miraculous going on um, and, and, and toss it as, you know, just uh, somebody's uh, imagination trying to, uh, you know, justify Israel and their place in the world many, many centuries after the events that are being described. Uh, but uh, most, most uh, even, even uh, liberal theologians, there, there's been enough evidence throughout that you kind of, that they, they kind of admit that they were, well, yeah, you, David's probably real. Of course, among conservatives, that's never been a question. But, I, I just, but this is not a, uh, just a fictional moral tale that teaches us about how to live before God. That's what I'm getting to. This is a real person. Uh, and recent archaeological finds, as in by recent I mean within the last 30 years, um, have, have confirmed that David and his house and what he established uh, was very much real. And that his, uh, he wasn't just some uh, low-key, low a Bedouin tribal leader that uh, was taking, putting, you know, taking on airs and lifting himself up as something great. Um, but no, he was a very real person. There's a there's an inscription that was discovered in 1993. Some of you may have heard of it, the Tel Dan inscription. Anybody hear of that? 
Um, it's a Canaanite writing, um, and it's describing one of the Canaanite kings that uh, uh, is attacking a king of Israel and a king of Judah, and um, how the the kings of Israel and Judah were defeated, and the the Judean king was described as being of the house of David. And this writing was dated from the 9th century BC, which is right, not, David's about a thousand, or a little before BC. So the house of David was established, the kingdom of Judah, the separate kingdoms, the biblical narrative is borne out, that's one of four inscriptions, and the other four also confirm other aspects of the scriptures during that time. So unless they're just belligerent leftist liberals at this point that are just bound and determined not to give any credence to the scriptures whatsoever, they're doing so uh, with the proverbial, you know, monkeys, you know, not seeing anything because we don't, we don't want to hear everybody pretty much acknowledges, yeah, David's real. And the things that we have in the scriptures are real. These are historically proven events. Which, to my mind, lends an even more remarkable tone to this entire account of the life of David. And makes, it should make us really want to sit up and take notice about what God is saying here. Um, you know, the inscription, uh, the, these inscriptions are great. Um, but uh, it, what's interesting about these inscriptions, as well as with, with uh, the account itself in the scriptures, is that, and this is going to sound kind of funny, but think about it for a second. It's really great that the inscriptions are not showing the house of David and the things of Israel in a positive light. They're slamming them. Why is that a good thing? You look at the biblical account. When you read through this biblical account, it is, how is David presented? As this perfect, glorious king that never blows it, that never makes a mistake, that constantly is confident, that is ever victorious? Not at all. One of the things that lends credibility, and so much of this is true throughout the scriptures, is that the scriptures are factual and true. They don't sugarcoat things. When uh, we're tempted to write a hero story, oh, the hero is, uh, you know, he's great. If he has a momentary loss, it's certainly not his fault. It's forces that, that he can't uh, uh, have any control over. But when it comes to his own self-control, the hero stories um, are off, very often, um, we'll call them rose-colored glasses accounts. They miss the things. But David, you get him warts and all in the biblical account. And that lends credibility to the story as well. So, again, David's story is so compelling because he is so clearly real. He's a man of strengths and weaknesses just like us, yet one who walked after God's own heart and he established a nation by covenant faithfulness in the God who promised him uh, an, an everlasting kingdom.
And of course, the significance for that kingdom and that faithfulness for future generations, uh, ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ, who would sit on the throne of his father David, as the prophets declared. The significance of all of that can hardly be overstated. But none of it would have happened if David had not controlled himself. This morning I want to spend some time just, we're going to be looking at just the first seven verses of this passage. I knew I had to do some fairly significant review because it's been so long and uh, wanted to lay some groundwork for what's going on. So we'll just cover the first seven verses and then we'll, Lord willing, look at the latter part of the chapter uh, next week. But in both this week and next, we're going to be dealing with this expectation, this demand that is upon us that, that you and I exercise self-control when we are opposed. Of course, opposition can come in many different forms. In this particular case uh, with David, it's coming with a pursuing, unreasonable, ungodly king who is intent upon destroying a contender for the throne that King Saul was sitting on. Even though Saul knew that David was the anointed one, even though he knew it was of Yahweh, Saul continued in his, per, in his persistence of trying to destroy David. For you, the oppression may be uh, the oppression of your own sin. It may be the oppression of, of um, the uh, affliction that is brought upon you because of your faith in, in the workplace or or just looking around and thinking about an ungodly world that is working in opposition to the church at large and believers in particular. Whatever the oppression is, it can be very easy, as we see evidence daily in social media and many other uh, avenues in our society, of people trying to take matters into their own hands, uh, people um, either through violent means or through mouthing off, or through any number of other unethical ways of going about trying to somehow promote righteousness by doing things in a wicked way. We're called upon to exercise self-control. Indeed, one of the fruits of the Spirit is indeed self-control, and that self-control should be shown in every part of our life. But when we are opposed, it's very difficult, is it not? When people are working at cross-purposes to you, when they're making your life difficult to want to respond in kind. David gives us an example of not doing that and what can come out of it. So, the setting that we're given here in, in 1 Samuel 24 is found in verses 1 through 3, the first part of 3. <clears throat> It's really interesting. Saul was called away to go deal with the Philistines, and all we get, we don't get any news. There's no, uh, there's no newsreel here about uh, how the battles with the Philistines went. All it just says is, well, when he quit following them, which is an interesting, I, I really wonder if he actually even engaged them. We're not, we don't know, but he, he certainly at least followed them around for a while to make sure that they were up to no make sure that their desires to be up to no good could not come to fruition. So he returns, he stops following the Philistines around, and when he 
gets back after doing that. He's told, okay, uh, by his spies. We already talked about the spies. Saul had a network of spies all over the place. And um, found out that David was in Gedi. So down in En Gedi. 600 men plus their families. Saul takes 3,000 of his best fighting men. And down they go. And uh, they come to this place called the Wild Goats Rocks. Now, and, and then there's sheep folds down below. From, we know where these caves are. Um, and uh, if there's not now, there were at one time uh, springs in there. And the springs would flow out of the cave. Um, and fell down the cliff down below. And they had sheep folds down there. Because they could get water and so on. The flocks could get watered down there. So that's the, the setting that's here. Now David and his men are hiding in the back of this cave. Saul decides to go in there and uh, relieve himself, as it said. It's, it's sort of a general thing. I mean, I, the way that we usually use that term, I think it probably means that. But it's also eh, perhaps to rest, perhaps to get, a, a, just out of the cool, uh, get it out of the heat of the day into a cool place where there's running water, a place to get recharged a little bit. Um, interesting. Saul... There are times when you look at Saul, who for all of his cleverness and for all of his scheming, does some of the stupidest things. I mean, if you are, you're at war, you're chasing somebody, you're expecting that this guy wants to take you out, which Saul has convinced himself that David wants to do that, even though it's not true. I mean, would you walk into a cave without, you know, eh, I'll just go in here, you know. Why didn't he send some soldiers in to scope it out? I don't know. I mean, you know, you could, you could have figured out this pretty easily. You'd have them trapped and it'd be all over. But Saul's arrogant. And so when you're proud, when you're sinful, you do stupid stuff. And so he, he does a stupid thing here. So he goes, goes in. What an opportunity. Here's the oppressor. And here's... 600 guys that would like to make him stop. When you look at these first seven verses, you see David having to wrestle with some things. He's wrestling with himself. He's wrestling with the Lord. He's wrestling with his men. What an occasion for uh, self-control to be exercised. David's been on the run for a long time. His wife's been taken from him. He's been deprived of peace and deprived of the honor that he once enjoyed. Uh, this man has attempted to take his life again and again and again. Put yourself in his place. You think the desire for vengeance would be pretty strong? I confess, would be for me. To get vengeance on my enemies, after all, it's wartime. Wartime ethics, it's okay. Right? And indeed, David's men seem to think that way. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. I want to break this down a little bit. When it comes to being oppressed... You and I need to control our desire for vengeance. Even when it seems like the opportunity is there. 
Because, first of all, we see in verse 3 that uh, uh, here's Saul. He is vulnerable. He's vulnerable. Your desire, though, can be misled by, quote-unquote, opportunity. Because opportunities can seem to be obviously from the Lord. After all, this, unfortunately, lots of decisions get made uh, in the Christian world and the ch- local church and, the, and, and broader based on expediency, on what is pragmatic. And here, what a great opportunity. This should be done. But just because an opportunity is there doesn't mean that it's from the Lord in terms of what the expectation is there. Certainly, this situation is divinely ordained. But usually when we look at opportunities like that and start claiming that, well, I can go ahead and pursue this line of, a, line of attack, this line of action. I can go ahead and pursue vengeance. I can get some of my own back. I can restore my name. I can do this. I can do that. I can do the other thing. Usually we say, yeah, this is from God when it all lines up in our minds of what we want to happen. But the Lord may have other purposes for that opportunity. And in this case, it seems to be to test David regarding how much David actually trusts God to exercise vengeance when and where he will. Commentator uh, Ralph Davis, in his uh, commentary on 1 Samuel, uh, uh, made this statement at this point in this text. And he said, Avoid the temptation of the shortcut. For David, this would have been a shortcut to the throne. Take Saul out. The army's done. He's already been anointed. He just has to be recognized in, 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 uh, in, a, in fallen human society, even in Israel at this time. Uh, you know, you, you take out the king, you get to be king next. Because you've shown yourself stronger. Right? I've got, you know, I'm claiming the throne that I was uh, anointed to uh, take. After all, this must be it. This must be the time when God wants me to take the throne would be an easy temptation to fall into. And indeed, kind of going along with this opportunity here that certainly had to be swirling around in David's mind, you've got his men. And they're all like, dude, what are you waiting for? In fact, they say, this is clearly of Yahweh. Yahweh has put him into your hands. Now's the time. Go kill him. So your desire for vengeance can be misled by opportunities, but they can also your, that desire can also be misled by others. No doubt, uh, our friends, you and I together, there are many times when we are a blessing, an encouragement to each other. But sometimes in our limited understanding of things, out of love for each other and out of a desire to encourage each other and um, 
uh, out of frustration for a situation that you might be in. We can give each other bad advice. We can talk each other into doing stuff that is about taking matters into our own hands instead of really trusting in the Lord. And that's what his men are doing here. But David, at this point, he almost blows it. And in one way, he does kind of blow it a little bit, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do the deed. But for a moment, his desire for vengeance is misled a little bit by pride. And that's where the cutting of the corner of the, the robe off. Now, when Saul went into the cave, cave to uh, take, care of, take care of things, it's likely that he took his robe off, laid it over a rock or whatever, and then went to a darker corner or whatever, do what he was going to do. And David sneaks up to the robe. It wasn't like Saul was wearing it. Okay. But he cuts the hem off. Saul wouldn't have noticed when he put it back on. And just, he would have never thought about that. And out he goes. But what's with the cutting off of the corner? Well, perhaps David was thinking a little bit in, uh, earlier in 1 Samuel uh, in uh, chapter 15 when Saul sins. Remember, he, he, he doesn't destroy everything. He's offering sacrifices. He doesn't wait for Samuel. And Samuel comes. Uh, Saul hasn't been obedient. Samuel uh, saying, you know, the Lord's going to take the kingdom uh, out of your hands. And Saul grabs onto Samuel's robe. You remember that? And the robe tears. And with the tearing of the robe, Samuel says, just as you've torn the robe, so the Lord is going to tear the kingdom out of your hands and give it to someone else. So David, not tearing, that would make a lot of noise, but goes and cuts off a corner, symbolically saying, um, you're losing the kingdom. You're losing the kingdom. It's going to go to me. This royal robe, it would have been a thing of status for Saul. This is less dramatic, but it's equally telling. It's a claim on the throne. So there's just a little bit of pride in here, a little bit of rebellion in here. A reminder, yeah, I want you to know I'm the true king and I'm going to take this. But as soon as David does that, he, his conscience is struck yeah, the opportunity was there. Others are urging him to take matters into his own hands. And even in his own pride, he's like, yes, okay, I'm not going to kill him, but I'm just going to let him know, you know, who's, who's the legit king. But this desire of David's, this is where we see the self-control kick in by the grace of God. Your desires can be brought under control no matter how badly you're oppressed by others. And there's two things that we see in David's account here that bring this about. First of all is the conscience. Verses 5 and 6. When David he, he cuts it off and after he does that he's like, oh, what did I do? Verse 5. His heart struck him because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe and then he uh, says to his men, you know, Yahweh forbid that I should do this. Should never have done this because he's Yahweh's anointed. Now think about this. If you had done that, would your conscience have bothered you? Me? No, probably not. 
but it's a big deal to David, and we wonder why. And this is where we start to see some things about David's being a man under God's own heart, after God's own heart. David realized that to attack, even in this benign way, to attack the anointed one of Yahweh is essentially to attack Yahweh himself. To say, Yahweh, you don't know enough to get me out of this mess and to deliver me from the oppressor. I've got to do it myself. Uh, theologian Gerhard von Groningen, uh, also quoted in the commentary by uh, Davis, uh, made this statement. Once anointed, the individual was set apart or consecrated to God. Hence, to touch, defile, and attack the anointed one was to approach the Lord himself and to seek to defile, harm, and remove the Lord from his rightful place. David was essentially saying, I know better than you, God. Step aside. Thanks for the opportunity. I'll take it from here. Um, and David's heart was rightly struck. His conscience was tender. We'll talk more about that in, in a moment. The other uh, aspect of control that David demonstrates and that where he uses it to help bring his own desires under control is it's controlled by command. In this particular case, he's commanding his men, but in the process of reminding them about what their obligations toward the Lord's anointed were, he's reminding himself. <coughs> he's putting himself out there publicly. This is the right path, and this is what I'm going to stick with. It, was, uh, it strengthened his own heart even as he addressed them. And it's interesting, it says that David persuaded his men with these words. That sounds really... You get the image from that that he's in the back of the cave going, come on, guys, you know, this, this isn't right. You know, that's not what the word means at all. The word literally means cut up. We would, we, we would say it this way in the vernacular, he shredded them. He shredded them. We might say he read them the riot act. <laughs> Whatever you want. This is a strong rebuke. Absolutely not. It is absolute sin. You will not do this. Is much more the attitude. David refused to let his men do that. And by putting himself in that position, he took the lead. I will not do it. You will not do it. Pretty tough thing to say to a bunch of guys who also had been driven out of their homes, driven away from their families, driven away from their lands, and were fugitives and criminals because of a wicked king. And you can imagine the pressure that was on David to do what they wanted him to do. How much happier we'd all be. And yet David stood by what was right because he would not take vengeance into his own hands. Now how is David's heart demonstrated in this? Three things. In verse 4, David is very much aware. When that, that, uh, that, uh, uh, when the situation takes place and the, his men say to him, Here, here's the day, they're reminding him as if he needed reminding that he was the anointed one, that he should be the rightful king. David's very aware of his own anointing and has been all along. He lived... He lived with that knowledge. It was part of 
walking by faith in the Lord that he knew that anointing was there and he, he did not give up on it. He did not despair of it, even though the timing was such that it just went on and on and on with him just kind of being in limbo. For you, when you're under oppression and things can go on and on, is there ever going to be any resolution? Am I ever going to get to the end of this? Should I just not take it out on the, the, on the person that is oppressing me and is making my life miserable instead of trusting the Lord for his timing? David was aware that God's hand was upon him and that God had a purpose for him and he was resting by faith in the Lord's timing and plan. Secondly, we've already talked about his conscience, this aspect of his character, his heart. Uh, he had a tender conscience there in verse 5. You know, fallen man hates the conscience that is implanted in all of us by our Creator. And the reason why is because it calls us to account even if we don't understand why it calls us into account. It calls us into account, and we don't like it. And that's why people suppress it, and they get a hardening of the conscience, right? We don't, we don't want to listen to it. We don't want to go that way. We, we want to feel comfortable in doing the, the wrong things that down deep we know are there. We're going to talk more about this with Saul, who absolutely knows what he's doing is wrong. Um, but but anyway, I don't want to get ahead of myself, because that's next week. But... When you harden yourself to the point of wanting to turn your conscience off, essentially what you're doing is striving to dehumanize yourself. Part of what is being human is the fact that you've got a conscience. Now, sometimes we look at cats and dogs and we you see pictures on the internet with some dog looking really guilty after they spilled something. But that's because they've been conditioned to know that if they do something like that, they're going to get whopped for it or, or yelled at or something else. Uh, it's not really a conscience thing. It's simply a fear of consequences. And they're smart enough to know that if they, if they look at you with those little eyes of theirs, uh, that you, you might melt and forget about it. But man has a genuine conscience. And fallen man hates it. If you look at Sigmund Freud's whole system of psycho, uh, psychoanalysis, you know what the whole thing is really about? When you come right down to it, Freud's system of psychotherapy, which uh, really has been ad adapted by much of the Western world at least, uh, as Walter Chantry puts it in his book on David, he says that this system is, in reality, a determined attack on the validity of the conscience. Freud viewed conscience as the enemy of progress and the enemy of peace. So he wanted to get rid of it, wanted to find excuses, wanted to give you any kind of out that you could, that it's always somebody else's fault, it's the environment's fault, but it's not yours. You need to retune your conscience so that it no longer fires when you do something uh, wrong. Chantry goes on to say that because he meditated upon God's word, David's conscience had become razor sharp. One of the best marks of spirituality, he says, is the sensitivity of conscience, ever alert and ever speaking with one of the moral judgments of God. David's heart was tender because he was a student of the word and meditated upon his Lord. 
And finally, verses 6 and 7 in his dealing with his men. Again, the pressure that was there, yet David responded with resolution. He was resolute with doing what is right. When we're in the midst of oppression, that's a time for us to want to cut corners, to take the shortcut, to figure out some way that we can get what we want, whether it's just relief or vengeance, ultimately, um, and give in. But instead, we're called upon to be resolute, and David demonstrates that resolve to be righteous and walk under submission to his king. Now, it's very natural to want to strike back on your own strength when you've been unjustly wronged. But the lust for vengeance must be brought under control. We all know the verse. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. There is a right way and a wrong way to pursue justice. David demonstrates the right way, exercising self-control when he was oppressed. May God grant us the grace to do the same. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this account of King David. Not king yet, uh, in, in actuality, but the anointed king. We thank you that he listened to you, that he submitted himself to you and walked with self-control towards Saul, who justly deserved punishment. But David knew that that punishment, that judgment was in your hands and he left it there. Lord, help us to do the same. Let us walk, yes, boldly, firmly, righteously, but patiently and with grace, even in times of oppression, knowing that you are sovereignly in control of all things. And that's, that's enough. Lord, grant us that self-control that the Spirit gives, and let us rejoice yeah, no matter what's going on as we rest in your sovereign plan. In Christ's name we pray.